Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. Today, we're spotlighting the health and safety of all personnel who work at post-fire scenes. We're talking about important new research from UL's Fire Safety Research Institute about hazards in the post-fire environment. It's challenging assumptions many fire investigators have and may change how you protect yourself during an investigation. With us are Dr. Gavin Horn and Jeff Pauley. Dr. Horn is a research engineer with UL's Fire Safety Research Institute. Prior to joining FSRI, Dr. Horn was the Director of Research Programs at the Illinois Fire Service Institute. He's also served as a firefighter, apparatus engineer, and fire investigator with the Savoy Fire Department. He holds a PhD in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Illinois and an ME in Fire Protection Engineering from the University of Maryland. Dr. Horn has published over 90 peer-reviewed journal manuscripts and given numerous presentations at meetings and conferences around the world. Jeff Pauley is a corporate post-fire scene health and safety consultant, a fire investigator with EFI Global Incorporated, and the former fire marshal for Bedford County, Virginia. He is the IWI Health and Safety Committee Chairman and represents the IWI on the Oversight and Planning Board of the Firefighter Cancer Cohort Studies Fire Investigation Expansion Study. He also serves on the technical advisory panels for the ULFSRI's Post-Fire Environment Research Project and the Fire Protection Research Foundation and North Carolina University Research Project, looking at the effectiveness of fire investigator clothing ensembles and decontamination wipes. He is an IWICFI and IWICI, as well as a member of the Institute of Fire Engineers. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for Thank you very us. much for having us. All right. So let's start by setting some context. Dr. Horn, what are the main chemical exposure issues fire investigators and other professionals who work in the post environment deal with? Well, there's a number of different uh, exposure challenges that the fire service has, and in particular, the post fire investigators. We typically look at things in two different groups. Uh, exposures to particulate that may be in the air after the fire, as well as vapor and gas phase contamination that we find in the air. Particulate is often made up of largely carbonaceous materials, but there's other vapors and compounds that may absorb to those contaminants. And when you think about things in the vapor phase or the gas phase, oftentimes we are concerned about volatile organic compounds or VOCs polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAHs. Aldehydes, one of the most common examples are formaldehydes. But there's a number of other compounds that may be present in the environment. This is one of the challenges that we have when trying to protect our post-scene investigators because of the large number of compounds that we don't know necessarily what will be there, what magnitudes will be there, and what is the best way to protect from those individual contaminants. And many of the times, or I would guess most of the times, these things you speak of are invisible. That's correct. In most cases, we will not be able to see many of the contaminants that are present on the fire ground. When high concentrations of particulate, particularly larger particulate, are present on the fire ground, we may be able to see those particularly if there's a light or sun coming in through the structure itself. However, many of the vapors themselves will not be visible by the naked eye, nor will some of the smaller particulate. Some of this particulate can be less than one micron in size, and those are not detectable by the naked eye. 
Yeah, I bring it up because just as you said, I've heard people say, well, when I shine my flashlight in a dark room, if nothing's floating around, I'm feeling pretty good. And uh, that's a scary thought. That is. Um, Jeff, what are, what are some of the factors that affect the exposures that fire investigators have in the post-fire environment? Well, as, as Gavin very nicely brought up, uh, the majority of these hazards are not visible. The thing that, that fire investigators need to understand is that the fact that they can't see them doesn't mean that they're not there. And, and there's, there's so many folks that believe that a cold scene, which is generally defined as starting somewhere around 72 hours after the fire's been extinguished with no visible, of course, we understand the caveat there, or detectable uh, hazards. They think that a cold scene is a safe scene and no uh, PPE respiratory protection is needed. And, and unfortunately, that's just not true. And, and the, the science is now starting to show that. And so uh, our goal is, is really to get folks educated and understanding that these hazards are there. The other challenge with it is that barring an acute issue, injury, illness, whatever, the, the, the hazard that these particulates, gases, and vapors present may not manifest for years, and based on individual susceptibility, <laughs> may not manifest at all. So it's, it's, it's really challenging to get folks to understand the hazards and the protections that are needed for them. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a very well. I think in a lot of cases, compared to what we see on TV, uh, it's a much more physical job than a lot of people consider. Um, can you talk about digging and all the things that people are doing and how that makes it even worse? Right. So the the first challenge is that you know the average firefighter working at a structural fire is in the hot zone in the hazardous environment for maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes. On rare occasions, they may go out, rehab, get a second uh, SCBA bottle and go back and do more, but significant exposure, but short period of time. The average fire investigator is in the post-fire scene on average about three hours. They are at many more fires than the average firefighter. And unfortunately, and this is what we're all trying to change, is less well-protected. So when they're in there, and even if they're just walking through, they're stirring up the, the, the little particulates, the nanoparticulates, uh, as Gavin mentioned, you know, one micron, two, three microns, can't see these things. When you dig out a fire scene, what we affectionately refer to as a good fire scene, right, where the, the debris is, is a foot or more deep, whatever. Uh, not only are you stirring up vast amounts of this particulate matter, but one of the still unknowns is uh, how much gas molecules and vapors are trapped down in that debris. So when they start to dig it up, all of this stuff is being released and it, it just screams for effective PPE. And yet we have many folks who are not doing that. 
Yeah, it was interesting can't. to me. You said that uh, somebody would, you know, go in and change their SCBA, and, and I, I don't know. I remember it where we were just trying to get people to put a any kind of mask on. What would you like them to have? Well, the the, the minimum that we recommend is a P100 particulate filter combined with a uh, canister that covers for oily vapors, acid gases, and formaldehyde. Significant measures uh, in many post-fires of uh, formaldehyde, and especially in, in the you know, two-hour to going forward time frame, but, but uh, you know, the this, this study that, that UL very nicely did uh, and was recently published looked at uh, the post-fire environment and showed uh, significant, reasonably significant amounts of formaldehyde well after the fire was extinguished. And, and so good respiratory protection. Now, there are some agencies that are uh, fire investigation agencies that are wearing SCBA all the way. And if you can, that's wonderful. But that solution does not work for everybody. Dr. Horn, you had something to add? Yeah, if I can, I, I think Jeff addressed many of the, the points sure. I wanted to to make. But you know, the highest level of protection <laughs> we that. know. Oh no, no, perfect. You know, the, as, as Jeff mentioned, the highest level of protection that we can provide from respiratory perspective is through the SCBA, and that is going to provide the best protection from the particulate as well as the gases that we had just discussed in in the on the fire ground. One of the important considerations that we also have to have around the fire ground and, and particularly some of the longer term post-fire investigation activities and the shoveling that you mentioned earlier is the physical exertion that's required in doing those activities. So as we more further protect our firefighters from the chemical contamination that's in the fire ground, which is something that we need to do to reduce those exposure risks, we also have to understand that can change some of the risks for heat stress because we have an individual that's more heavily and more fully encapsulated because now if they're wearing an SCBA carrying some additional weight, there can be breathing resistance with changes with you know, any type of breathing protection, airway protection that we might use. It's also true that these things affect the ability to operate some of the tools. Digging the fire ground with an SCBA on your back and the shoulder straps, that changes the biomechanics of, of how you move. So we need to understand that while we want to protect firefighters as much as possible from these particulate and these vapors, there's other impacts that that can have and other injury risks that we need to take care of and ensure that firefighters have the proper work rest cycle. Ensure our fire investigators also have those proper work and rest cycles. Ensure that our fire investigators are properly hydrated as they go to the scene and then while they're working on the scene for multiple hours. We need to make sure that we help them to stay hydrated so that they can continue to wear as much PPE as possible. And while it's also important to make sure that uh, fire investigators are, are medically and physically capable of doing those jobs. So all of this really wraps up in a, a larger holistic discussion about risks in the fire service and for post-fire investigators. You, you brought up an interesting point, and, and I, I, but I wanted to follow up with Jeff first. I, Jeff, I, I hadn't thought about it, and maybe it's ignorance, 
about the fact that fire investigators go to a lot more fires. Um, and, I, and I wonder if fire investigators think about that, you know, um, but I, I think it's an excellent point. I just thought it should be brought up again uh, because I think sometimes they just. Feel yeah. The, so look at most any jurisdiction and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll pick on my local municipal uh, fire department in Greensboro, North Carolina. You know, they've got uh, somewhere in the, the, about 40 engine companies throughout the city. So they go to a structure fire, you, you know, the average residential structure fire, you may have three engine companies there. Well, that may be the only fire that they, they work for that shift, but there's only one fire investigator on duty. So that investigator may be going on some nights, because uh, they work a 24 hour shift, they may be going from fire to fire to fire to fire. Uh, are, are there resources that they can call in to get more help? Of course, uh, which you have to do for the, 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 the more involved investigations, but it's not unusual at all for that to happen in any jurisdiction. And uh, that is the rule rather than the exception within uh, the fire investigation community uh, on the public side, on the private side, things are not a lot different. Uh, it's not uncommon to do two a day. It's not uncommon to do, uh, you know, one a day for five or six days, uh, depending on a variety of factors. And uh, so the exposure quantity is is higher, and the exposure. Uh, length of time you're in the environment is higher than the average firefighter. Yeah, I, I, I just thought it was a good point that you had brought up, and I, I thought it was a good reminder uh, to our fire investigators out there and, and hopefully a motivation to take more of this seriously every day. One thing um, that we haven't talked about quickly, and I, it just came to mind, uh, we're thinking about all this breathing, but what about absorption? <laughs> absolutely. Well, absolutely. and and. Uh, you know, to continue with Gavin's point on uh, exertion, uh, as the as the body heats up, as the skin surface heats up, uh, it absorbs more readily the contaminants. Uh, there's an old publication out uh, that said, and a lot of a lot of places have picked up on this and repeated it, that for every five degrees uh, increase of skin surface temperature, the absorption goes up something like 400%. Well, after doing a lot of digging, uh, one of our graduate research folks at NC State University found out that the author, whoever it was that originally wrote that had recanted that statement because the numbers could not be substantiated. But the concept uh, is very valid and has been shown. So the, we we get hot, we get sweaty, the skin temperature goes up. If your skin is not covered, it's not protected, it's getting the particulates and the gases on it, most often that you can't see, but they're there. Uh, and the rate of absorption, dermal absorption, is greatly increased. So what have you seen as 
not necessarily the best protection, but what have you seen as, well, the best would be nice, right? But what have you seen as uh, a good standard when you've seen fire investigators out there and they're doing things to protect themselves? What, what are they doing properly? Well, the, the, the bottom line of that is covering the, the skin surface, whether it is long pants and a long sleeve shirt, or it's Tyvek, or it's a non-structural yet firefighter coveralls, things like that. There are a variety of things. Now, what's nice is our friends uh, at, again, at NC State uh, are doing a research project on this very subject uh, that's currently underway. So they're testing multiple different uh, apparel options and exposing them to the gases and particulates found in the post-fire environment. So we will know when that study's over, and it's it just started less than a year ago, and it's a two-year study. So we'll know more, uh, but it, the bottom line is any covering is better than nothing. So we'll, we'll, we'll see where that goes. But, you know, there are agencies that are wearing, uh, public agencies that are wearing uh, structural, which is fine, but... As Gavin pointed out, you can easily overexert and can and get hot and sweaty and nasty, and 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 it it the work rest cycle has to be looked at. Tyvek is is good, but it's not a whole lot better from that standpoint. Uh, it's kind of like wrapping yourself in in plastic wrap, right? Um, yeah. Bottom line at this point is any covering is is better than nothing. Okay. Again, you know, when we think back to what we've seen over the years, uh, a lot of this is requires more thought, more motivation of the fire investigators that are out there and prioritizing their lives. So uh, I, always, I don't know. I always like to keep moving back to, you know, what are the very tactile things that we can do? First of all, if we, we take a step back and look at from a higher level perspective in terms of how contaminants can make their way into the fire investigator's body. There's three main routes of entry that we are typically concerned about in terms of fire ground contaminants. They're inhalation, absorption, and ingestion. And so in each of those, we discussed a little bit about SCBA and other respiratory protection. SCBA can largely eliminate the um, respiratory route, and it's very effective. Some other Respiratory protection techniques are not quite as effective, but can do a very good job for the contaminants that we see in the post-fire scene. The absorption route is one that is becoming under much more close scrutiny uh, during the firefight, as well as during the post-fire scene investigation. Because if the respiratory route is, is protected, then that is believed to be now one of the most important routes for contaminants to enter the firefighter's body. And as Jeff had mentioned, the rate at which contaminants enter the body is not completely understood at this point. And it's likely to vary based on a whole lot of different things, including what the compound is itself and things such as skin temperature, body temperature, and other things along those lines. So there's a lot more research that has to be done in order to understand how these contaminants may get into the body. But there are things that we can do to reduce the risk and the opportunity for them to enter the body. Wearing PPE, 
is one of the most straightforward ways, particularly in covering as much skin as you possibly can. Though again, research is trying to understand the trade-off between covering skin, reducing that dermal absorption, and heat stress, because the way the body cools itself is by the sweat evaporating from the skin and then cooling down the body itself. So there's a trade-off that has to be understood there. The other thing that we're starting to understand in terms of contamination on the body is, is where it's coming from. Is it coming from the activity itself or is it coming from the doffing process of the gear itself? So as we take off any gear that might be contaminated, it's possible to transfer some of that back to the body during the doffing process itself. So being careful to take off your personal protective equipment and in particular the gloves that you wear Gloves happen to be one of the most contaminated pieces of PPE that we find on the fire ground. So taking those off with care, not to touch the outside of that gear that's contaminated is a way that we can reduce the risk for some of those exposures on the fire ground itself. And then of course, the next step is to remove it from the skin as quickly as possible. So wipes that can be used on scene can reduce some of that exposure as quickly as possible on the fire ground. Even after each time maybe the gear is doffed or each time there's an entry that's being made when someone comes back out and swaps out the air bottle or grabs a drink of water, they can start to do some of these hygiene practices on the fire ground. But also we want to encourage firefighters and fire investigators to, to get a shower and more thorough clean as rapidly as possible once they have completed that work on the fire ground itself. So there's a lot of ways that we can help to address some of those concerns for dermal absorption. And there's a lot more to be learned as research continues. Well, we appreciate that research. Uh, it, it always seems to pay off. Dr. Horn, uh, getting on to more research, um, what's FSRI's research agenda as it relates to these health and safety hazards in the post-fire environment? Well, the research agenda is focusing on what we can do to help fire investigators to have a healthy and safe occupation and doing the job as effectively as they possibly can throughout their time on the fire ground as a fire investigator, and also hopefully having a long and healthy retirement. So we're looking at what we can do to help fire investigators to be more effective and efficient in the work that they do. So Dan Madrakowski is leading a number of projects looking at identifying different fire patterns, how to collect that information, to use that information more effectively. We're looking at some of the health and safety concerns around the fire investigators, and particularly here, the post-fire investigator exposure to chemical content. But there's a lot of additional work that we need to understand as we change some of the PPE, how does that impact the balance between chemical exposure protection and some of the heat stress that we've talked about. So we're trying to look at this from multiple different perspectives in terms of the efficiency and the effectiveness of, of the data collection that's being conducted on the fire ground, and also some other work looking at how that can be used in the laboratory and models that are developed often to help the fire investigators. So that's kind of the effectiveness and efficiency side. And on the health and safety side, right now we're really focusing on that chemical exposure aspect, but eventually we'll have to look at that from a more holistic reduction of injuries on the fire ground for the post-fire scene investigators that takes into account chemical exposures, thermal exposures, 
changes in biomechanics and other things that may increase risk for the fire investigator. So your most recent study, though, is in airborne contamination during post-fire investigations. I understand like hot, warm, cold scenes. Can you summarize the testing procedure used and, and what are your conclusions so far? Sure thing. Yeah. So in uh, January of 2022, uh, we were fortunate to have a paper published in the Journal of Occupational Environmental Hygiene that was focused on airborne contamination during the post-fire investigations. And as you mentioned, looking at a range of the different scenes or the time frame after the fire has been suppressed, which include the hot and the warm and then the cold scene. The study was actually conducted alongside a, a separate study that was focused on firefighter tactics. So a study funded by the Department of Homeland Security through their fire prevention and safety grants looked at uh, firefighter size up, search and rescue. As part of the study, we built a pair of 1600 square foot full-size residential homes, single family homes built as they typically would in today's construction that have the same type of residential furniture that you might have in a house in the 21st century. And in those homes, we developed 18 different fires. Half of them were ignited in a bedroom and another half were in a common room. So the common room included the kitchen as well as kind of a great room setup where there were couches and chairs, tables, televisions, and those sorts of things. So kind of an open floor plan structure. And these fires were initially developed in order to look at how firefighters, their impact, how firefighters might respond differently based on how they might put water on the fire in different manner or how they might open up windows and doors and affect different rescues from within those structures. We were fortunate to be able to take a look at those once they were suppressed and to measure the contaminants in the environment. And some of them during the overhaul process itself, immediately after suppression was conducted, we moved some of the, some of the tools in to measure airborne contaminants, particularly vapors and gases in the air, volatile organic compounds, aldehydes, and things like that during the overhaul process, which is also what investigators might move into what's called a hot scene A. So immediately after the suppression, holding some of the overhaul in order to be able to document some of the, uh, some of the scene before additional overhaul. We then also held it for an hour after overhaul had been completed for what is often referred to as a hot scene B scenario, where we went in and did the investigation, took some pictures, um, identified patterns, moved some of the material around as is necessary to look at where there might be different patterns underneath any material that might have fallen down from the ceiling, from the cabinets, from the uh, bedroom materials themselves. And then in a few cases, we boarded the structure up. We said, all right, we're going to close this up, put OSB over the uh, door and any of the windows that have failed, and come back a day later, which is common occurrence on, on the investigations. And sometimes might have to come back three days later or up to five days later. So in each case, we would come back, do an hour's worth of investigation, and that included all sorts of different types of activities, taking pictures drawing diagrams, 
shoveling out the scene. In some cases, some drywall came down off of the wall or some of it was removed, particularly in the last day in order to, to inspect structural components. And those things were done again, up to five days out from the fire scene itself. So that's a quick overview of the study. I know that was a whole lot in, in a short period of time, but the main outcomes that we found from here, just if I can put a, a bow on, on this, the two main things that we identified were that first of all, they're elevated and in some cases hazardous levels of airborne particulate that are gonna be encountered during any phase of the post-seraphine investigation. And, and it really depended on the activities of the fire investigator. It wasn't in every scenario, but even up to five days out, depending on what the fire investigator was doing, we saw some elevated and again, oftentimes hazardous levels of that particular contamination. The other thing that we found was the formaldehyde concentrations exceeded some recommended exposure limits, even out beyond the initial fire attack, even beyond hot scene A and hot scene B, we actually found that after the scene was closed up, the formaldehyde concentrations increased it, increased that one day post the fire and exceeded some of the short-term exposure limits or NIOSH ceiling limits for formaldehyde. And they remained elevated even above recommended exposure limits out to three days post-fire. So we often think about volatile organic compounds such as benzene or semi-volatile PAHs such as naphthalene as some of the, the, con the compounds we're most concerned about during the firefight, or at least in the highest concentrations. But during the investigation phase, we actually found that formaldehyde was higher than we had expected and relatively higher than some of those exposure limits that are recommended for occupations. So that's the main takeaways that we had from that study. Well, it sounds uh, extensive. And I, I, you know, it's always great news to, to, to hear the, the amount of detail. And, and I love the redundancy of the, the two matching homes and looking at the different scenarios and the, the great room, the bedroom. And the, it really captures, I think, a lot of, of what fire investigators are walking into every day. So, Jeff, how does it feel? I mean, you've been fighting this fight for a while. Let me tag on to what Gavin just said and, and also to answer your question. This was the first scientific study of the true post-fire environment. Typically, fire scene research stops when the big red trucks leave the scene. In the past, we've had to extrapolate fire scene research, fire overhaul research, and make some assumptions about the post-fire environment. The research that UL just did is the first true, that I'm aware of, the first true post-fire scene research. And yeah, very nicely left something out that I'm gonna add back in. Yes, the, the fire ventilation research that they did was through a federal grant. The post-fire, so out the five days, the instrumentation, the analysis of those samples was all done by UL and more importantly paid for significant dollars by UL. And I just cannot 
say enough good things about the fact that Gavin's boss, Dan, Steve Kerber, on up the chain, who approved the expenditure of these funds to do this uh, significant work. So they, they have they have opened the barn doors, so to speak. There are other projects underway. There is a lot more that needs to be done regarding the health hazards of the post-fire environment. We're going to know a lot more five years from now than we know today, but they have taken a huge first step so that we can really drill down and, and see what these hazards are. And the results of that research going forward will likely change how fire investigations are done. What that's going to look like in 10 years, I don't know. But I, I think that it will be significantly different in a number of areas than it is today. Thank you. And following along with that theme, Dr. Horn, what's up next for FSRI's post-fire environment, post environment research agenda? Well, the next step is to continue looking at these types of structures uh, in, in various different ways. Uh, opportunities that may come available to FSRI. As mentioned earlier, the, the paper that we published was a result of being able to piggyback on some studies that were conducted at FSRI's campus in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. But there's also gonna be opportunities to potentially look at fire scenes that are out there outside of the controlled environments of our research campus. So using some of those same methodologies to go out and monitor some post-fire scene investigations that are going out in the world. And we have some opportunities, hopefully, to take care to do some of those investigations later this year. We're also interested in expanding some of the measurements that we're taking. Oftentimes, it's, it's best to develop a measurement methodology in some of the controlled environments that we can uh, can conduct in Delaware County or in some of our laboratories at Northbrook, Illinois, or in Columbia, Maryland, and then move them out into the world where you'll have more variability in the fuels that are involved in the fire or the ventilation that is involved in the fire or the firefighting tactics. So we're hoping to expand out and to look at some of those additional pieces that we'll, we'll be able to find out in actual structure fires that are being uh, responded to throughout the United States, as well as some of the other compounds. Uh, we focused on some of the benzene, toluene, ethyl benzene, xylene, and styrene known as B-Texas. Um, we've focused on some aldehydes and other compounds that, that we didn't find in very high concentrations in our study, but we might find in higher concentrations elsewhere. And furthermore, there's other compounds that we can look for, that we should look for, and are working to understand how to develop that measurement capability. Some compounds such as flame retardants that get released from furnishings as they burn inside a residential structure. Uh, PFAS, per alkyl substances, are also a compound that are of concern to the fire service and the contamination that may result from compounds that are on fire that contain some of those or 
I should say, some materials that are on fire that contain some of those compounds and do they get released into the air and contaminate the post-fire scene? So really interested in going broader and deeper in understanding the chemical exposures that post-fire investigators might encounter on the fire scene. You know, you go so far and so deep that the one message that I'm getting out of this is, boy, cover up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wear, wear the best gear you have um, because there's things that are out there we know will kill you and there are things out there we're not even sure about yet. So uh, absolutely uh, appreciate your work. Yeah. Yeah. And what we measured is, is one of the most complete characterizations of the compounds that are present on the fire ground and in the investigation scenes. But again, there's many others there that we don't know yet. And we don't know the concentrations there are. In some cases, we don't know the impact on health and safety of the fire service. So you're absolutely right. Understand that, that the contaminants are there and we need to do, we need to be diligent to protect ourselves from those contaminants in whatever way we can. Well, we appreciate your curiosity and all the work that you do. Um, Jeff, I want to give you an opportunity to mention something you already touched on, and that is uh, letting the audience know when the third edition of the IWI Health and Safety Committee document will be out. Absolutely. Uh, we have, uh, for the first time in three years, thankfully, uh, our international training conference coming up. Uh, in a few weeks in Jacksonville. On Wednesday of that week, April 13th, there is an entire uh, block of health and safety sessions. So there are four sessions that day. Dr. Horn and Dr. Matikowski will be there along with many other research uh, folks, uh, giving some excellent presentations. I, I'm really excited about that. And uh, in conjunction with that, we will be releasing the third edition of best practices. Uh, so April 13 is, is the key date. Uh, for those who cannot attend, we have what I refer to as a hot link IAAIwhitepaper.com, which goes to the research uh, page within the Fire Arson website. You do not have to be a member of the IAAI to access that information. So the third uh, edition will be there and all of the other resource materials that we have uh, developed in conjunction with the work that we do are there and available for anybody. There are uh, one page flyers that can be printed and, and put up as posters, just all sorts of things. So uh, April 13th is the key date uh, that we are releasing that document and getting together with a bunch of really smart people to talk about Fire Investigator Health and Safety Research. We have a whole session on behavioral health uh, that Dr. Kelly O'Dare from Florida is doing uh, along with one of our committee members. Uh, a lot of good, lot of good stuff coming up. It's going to be uh, 
it's going to be great. I'm really excited. A lot of work's gone into uh, putting that uh, together and bringing it forward for everybody. Looking forward to seeing you out there. Um, we've gone deep today, gentlemen, um, into the ash. And, and I, I wonder if we're missing anything, if there's any message that we need to get out there, or do you feel like we've, we've pretty much gotten out there what we need to? I like your, uh, your, your relatively straightforward message of we need to be aware that we're going into a dangerous environment while doing some of these investigations. There's risks there, some that we don't know. So protect yourself as best you can. As high a level of respiratory and dermal protection as you can provide and you can wear, as high a level of monitoring as possible, including formaldehyde, and again, ensuring that our firefighters are prepared. I should say ensuring that our fire investigators are prepared for the job physically and medically so that they can be healthy and safe while they're doing these activities. It seems fairly straightforward considering the complexity of what we're facing, but those steps can go a long way to helping reduce some of the risks for our fire investigators. Anything you'd like to Amen add? Amen to that. No, that's, that, that really hits the nail on the head. Uh, uh, that and, and just a cold scene is not a safe scene. Simple, basic. We can get people to understand that and, and, and wear the, do all the things that Dr. Horn just referred to. Life will be much better. Thank you both. Really grateful for your time today. And uh, this, is, this is some real important stuff. And I hope to see uh, both of you out at, at ITC in uh, Jacksonville. Looking forward to it. Thank you. You too. Okay. All right. Thank you, Rod. See, see you guys soon. Thanks. You Bye. Right. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Listeners can get the full text of the study we talked about today, as well as the latest edition of the IWI's Health and Safety Committee's Fire Investigator Health and Safety Best Practices document using the links on this podcast page. For more in-depth training on health and safety in the post-fire environment, check out the IWI's 2022 International Training Conference and Expo, taking place April 10th through the 15th in Jacksonville, Florida. One full day of conference is devoted to health and safety training, and both Dr. Horn and Investigator Pauly will be there presenting, including talking about the FSRI's research impacting fire investigators. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from a fire prevention and safety grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. There's also support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next month. For the IWI and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon. This podcast is written by Kathy DePiro and edited by Carl Erickson. Linda Aurelio handles scheduling and production management, and Stacey Anderson and Jason Jammer handle promotion and social media.